Before I introduce our preacher this morning, allow me to read the passage from which he will be preaching, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. The word of the Lord. It's my privilege this morning to introduce Dr. Martin E. Marty, the Fairfax M. Cohn Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago Divinity School, where he taught for 35 years and where the Martin Marty Center has since been founded to focus scholarly perspectives on religious questions facing the wider public. He writes a poignant column for the bi-weekly Christian Century on whose staff he served since 1956, is the editor of Context since 1969, and authors the weekly email column Sightings. Dr. Marty, who prefers to be known as Marty, has taught in the Divinity School, the Department of History, and the Committee on the History of Culture since 1963. He specializes in late 18th and 20th century American religion. An ordained minister in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, Professor Marty has put considerable effort into the training of ministry students at the Divinity School. He is the author of over 50 books, including the three-volume Modern American Religion. His work, Righteous Empire, won the National Book Award and since retirement has managed the complexity of the demands of his professional life with the use of his website, Illuminos.com. Marty is a past president of the American Academy of Religion, the American Society of Church History, and the American Catholic Historical Association. He has served on two U.S. presidential commissions and was director of both the Fundamentalism Project of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Public Religion Project at the University of Chicago. He has served St. Olaf, Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota since 1988 as regent, board chair, interim president in late 2000, and is now a senior regent. He was the founding president of the Park Ridge Center for the Study of Health, Faith, and Ethics, and is now the George B. Caldwell Senior Scholar in residence there. Marty's honors include the National Humanities Medal, the National Book Award, the Medal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, 
the University of Chicago Alumni Medal, the Distinguished Service Medal of the Association of Theological Schools, and the Order of Lincoln Medallion, Illinois' top honor. Marty has received 72 honorary doctorates. He was ordained into the ministry in 1952 and served for a decade as a Lutheran parish pastor before joining the University of Chicago faculty in 1963. Marty and his wife Harriet, a musician, live in Riverside and enjoy an extended family of seven children, including two who, he jo- who joined the family as foster children, nine grandchildren, and what, one great-grandchild. Known to be funny and brilliant, Human and warm, exceedingly insightful and devout, he is considered to be a bridge between the worlds of liberal mainline Protestantism and evangelical Christianity. Regarded by the American public as one of the foremost interpreters of religion, it is our privilege to welcome the Reverend Dr. Martin E. Marty to the pulpit of Christ Church here this morning. Join me, won't you please, in welcoming him. Yeah, that's a good idea. Bless you, brother. Dear friends, the introduction is lavish and generous and long, and um, I'm an editor, so I always have to edit a little bit. Uh, it says we live in Riverside. We had 43 good years there, but we've now moved to downtown where we live in the John Hancock Tower, 85th floor. We can see Oak Brook from there. <laughs> and my wife had planned to come along today uh, to the western suburbs, which she has loved. But uh, in a moment, I'll say why she's not here, excusing herself and explaining something that's on my mind. The text we have today is one of the most militant in the Bible. It's a weird wardrobe for peacemakers because Christians are supposed to make peace. Peace with God, peace among the nations, peace with each other. And then we hear all these very militant sounds. I don't know whether you were all remember how the Art Institute at Chicago always used to have that long gallery you pass through with medieval armor. Uh, my least favorite, my children's most favorite section at the Art Institute. And in the middle of all that, we suddenly hear, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. When we come into a sanctuary on a Sunday morning, from our many places and walks of life, our burdens and joys, we enter a somewhat different world. And yet it's a world that is very closely related to that other one. And this text will help us do that for this week, I hope. What was on my mind, and it's heavily on my mind, is you, I have to update the great-grandchild part of the section because my wife is at the baptism today of a, by adoption, a great-granddaughter whose father was in Afghanistan, sent home on medical leave and waiting for a new assignment. We have a nice picture of him holding the little baby, four weeks old, whom he was just meeting. Post-trauma syndrome. He shot himself to death. 
as me more dramatic than most of the turns in my life and maybe yours, but they all come to all of us somehow or other. What is the evil spoken of there? Do I need proper nouns? Must I say Taliban? Or the opium growers that are keeping things going in Afghanistan? That's not what this service is for. The service is for recognizing that in all of our lives, none of you are exempt, we're always living between the war and the peace in our soul, in the world, in our daily life. And this message is to speak to us. Now, often when I would read this text, I would feel out of it. My 10 years of pastorate were in suburbs most of the time. And I would come across these texts about how Christians are to suffer, how Christians are in the great cosmic battles, and they always seemed remote and distant. Sometimes it almost came with a little sense of envy that the people I served didn't seem to be involved in that drama. Summer of 1962, when our boys were little, we had a week in Hampton Institute in Virginia, 500 African-American pastors. And in the morning, I would give a lecture the way professors do, and they would all studiously take notes and have their tape recording on. In the afternoon, Martin Luther King would preach, and nobody took notes. They were jumping. They were on the go. And I would hear him in what they called the Martin and Martin show, uh, I would keep thinking that the people I served had inner struggles of their own, but we didn't seem to be on the march to something. We didn't have a Sheriff Bull Connor and burner of Birmingham churches and things like that to illustrate for us the drama of life that most people in the world know. At three minutes after five o'clock deadline, June 30th, I finished a new book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great theologian who gave his life, was killed by Hitler, April 9th, a month before D-Day. And I reread his works, including one that many of you may know, The Cost of Discipleship, in which he says, when Jesus Christ calls a person, he calls that person to die. And yet we lived happily. It seems so remote. It takes quite a deal of bridging to write about his book, Letters and Papers from Prison, reminds you of St. Paul, a message of liberation. His last words as they put him to the gallows was, this is the end, but for me the beginning of life. Those are things that we think we are exempt from and they're far away from us. But are they? I brought along a statistical sheet because if somebody doesn't believe me, I'll show it to you in print. The people who keep the World Christian Encyclopedia records every year send us records, and last year, according to their record, the estimate is that around the world, 117,000 Christian martyrs gave their lives. We get little glimpses. I was in the Soviet Union the year before it ended and dealt with all kinds of Christians who had to have secret meetings or could never say a word about the gospel of peace, whatever shoes they were wearing outside of the sanctuary itself where the doors were closed. In South Africa, again, the year before the end of apartheid, I would preach in a little church, colored, they were called, colored people, so poor they couldn't afford hymn books. Lucas, who had come to Christ, was a jazz musician, 
the pastor would sing a line, and then he'd play it, and we'd all go along with it. And they treated my wife and me so well. At the end of the day, I said, and then what can we do for you? Do what you do for us every week. Pray for us. Ooh. (laughs) How often was I keeping any of them in mind? That's in the text today, too. And the year before the Berlin Wall fell, I was in the eastern zone of Europe, visiting with uh, Professor Jena, whose daughter could not go to the university because she was in Christian Confirmation. Those seem such faraway stories, and then we come to our own world and we wonder, what's it look like for us? And how do we move from that grim life, which you can pick up on cable television or read in the newspapers? I'm resisting the impulse to start anywhere because that's mainly what they're about these days. The present evil age, this text summarizes it. We're facing the spiritual forces of evil, the text says. And that's not why you came. You came because of what we had in the prayer and the word, because of a resurrected Lord who gives us a peace. In the midst of all that armament we wear against the evil one, I often didn't notice till recently, tucked into the middle of them all is that one that is our text. Helmet, shield, breastplate, and all that. But as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Peace in the heart, peace in the family, peace in community, peace in the nation, peace in the world. That's gospel. Yes, it says you should put them on, but it's a privilege to put them on. Some years ago, I interviewed Albert Outler, probably the most notable United Methodist theologian of the day, maybe the top historian of theology of the time. And uh, he was in his 80s. I was young and in my 60s. (laughs) And I said to him, Albert, a lot of seminary professors serve very well, but they're mainly in the library, the classroom, the seminar, the archives. And you all through your career did that, but you also every week were out there somewhere at a little hilltop country Methodist church in Texas or a downtown Methodist church in Highland Park, but you were always preaching. You must have learned something from what you were doing with that combination. Yes, I learned. I shouldn't try a Texas accent. I I learned that I like to have the first 40 years of sermons back to redo them. Why? Because I was always advertised as a minister of the gospel and all my sermons ended with now you gotta. You gotta do this, you gotta that. You gotta be generous, you gotta be moral, you gotta be whatever. That is not gospel. Gospel is you get to. Because the new life we move into with the sacrifice of Christ and the love he brings, you get to do these things. Yes, you get to put on that heavy armament, but why? You do it because you get to spread the gospel of peace along the way. The language of militancy stays with the church down into our own time. You heard me mentioned as a Lutheran, and I've written on Martin Luther, but a better book than the one I wrote is by Heiko Obermann called Luther Between God and the Devil. And he says, you'll never understand this reformer, and you won't understand Calvin or any of the others either, if you don't 
realize that they are seeing their battle as a cosmic battle. Bigger things are at stake than those few people gathered under that pulpit in Wittenberg. Oh, I envied him because he had that big drama going on. A poem by W.H. Auden about him says, The just shall live by faith, he cried in dread, and men were glad who never trembled in their youthful lives. And when I got catechism drummed into me as a restless little 14-year-old Nebraskan, I was sort of envious what it must have been like in his time when it was really the vibrant thing. And then I read that three years into the Reformation, kids don't want to go to confirmation, and the clergy says, well, we'll call in the police, we'll make you sit there. And all of a sudden, it seemed quite liberated by contrast. Always these stories are set against the drama of a bigger world than the one that is in the Little Wittenberg Church or the Little South African Church or in Oak Brook. The present evil age, and we are privileged to face it and do something about it. Well, certainly the people to whom this letter was written must have had bigger drama, wouldn't they? Some did. In the early church, many of the people who got letters like this one died for their faith, wouldn't put their pinch of incense on the Roman emperor's, the god's, shrine. And that's the story we mainly tell until we study the past and we find there were more people, quote, like us than those who were brought to the Colosseum and wrestled out of catacombs and toward death. You get clues in these texts along the way. In Jesus' parables, we know they were for the poor, and yet it assumes the etiquette of what you wear to a banquet for a wedding. These were people who were leading lives in their day job and their family life against this bigger backdrop. There's an old saying from the third century that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But my wittily cynical colleague who taught early church history said that's true, but also we get something from those who stayed alive. (laughs) We wouldn't be here had not some of them along the way taught their children and passed the word on and seen to it that we have a scripture. Ephesus, mentioned in this letter, probably had 200,000 people in that day, and a few of them were in middle-class Christian enclaves. They weren't all peasants and poor. We get clues from the first convert in Europe, Lydia, a seller of purple, which was expensive people's cloth. Paul himself, through his whole career, was a tent maker, and the more we can learn about what that meant, it wasn't he making little pup tents for the Cub Scout weekend. Tents of the kind he made were for royalty. Gold braid, etc. He's living in the midst of all that. He knows that world. He's doing an eight-hour-a-day job, and yet he sees the drama of his life against this much bigger scale. And it's liberation. What is the gospel of peace for which you are to have your shoes in readiness? What is that gospel of peace? One commentator picks four themes out of this letter to Ephesians. One is the gospel of peace gets you from bondage to liberation. Rulers, authorities are all there. Death is the last enemy. 
And through the cross of Christ and his resurrection, you get to be free and you get to live it and you get to share it. Your shoes should be on in readiness for that sprint. The second is the overcoming of guilt. You had, as you have every week in services here, a private moment, an acknowledgement, and then the public gathering that we contribute to this world, the present evil age, maybe by the compromise we make, maybe by the courage that doesn't show up at the right time, whatever it would be, and with the act of Christ it changes. The language of Paul, which we Lutheran Augustinians make so much of, is justification by grace through faith, and it's really hard to get that concept down. Luther says, think of it this way, it's a joyful exchange. You bring to the cross what went wrong this week. The guilt, the bad conscience, the unfinished tasks, the disappointments, the doubt, the despair. You leave it there, and the joyful exchange is the gift of God, of freedom and justice and love. And all the words in these windows here are your gift. The third is you go from estrangement to reconciliation. Do we all feel that? You all know the word xenophobia. Xenos is the Greek word for stranger. Xenophobia is fear of and hatred of the stranger. And there's plenty of that running around these days. And the other Greek word, xenophilia, its opposite, is the word that's translated into English as hospitality. Inhospitable relations between us and others, between ourselves and God, overcome When Henry David Thoreau was dying, somebody said, Henry, have you made your peace with God? He said, I never realized we were at war. (laughs) Well, that was Thoreau, and he had a lot of wisdom, but that wasn't the full wisdom. We're estranged, and that's overcome in God's acceptance of the gift of love in Christ. Our deformity and transformation. We inhabit bodies that are not permanent. We get messed up along the way. Body and soul and spirit, we are transformed by the gift of God in Christ. This is all placed against the background of a demonology in the language of Satan, stuff that I find a little hard to talk about. One comic helped me a good deal when he said, when he was asked, do you believe in the devil? He said, I don't really believe in the devil, but I think my house is haunted. (laughs) In other words, the marks of the Satans and the devils and the demons about which Paul doesn't really make a lot. He doesn't have to have all the language of that. He knows that's what everybody's thinking. And in that world, what are we going to do to transform that ordinary life? North Korea, bin Laden, Taliban, Madoff, our words every day are full of that. And we get to live in a world in which that's present, in which we do not in life have a complete victory but we have the armament to keep the worst from happening, and then some good things happen. I was preparing this sermon, and I was at a concert in Millennium Park last night, and my wife is enjoying the opera singers, and I'm worried about preaching the next morning. And I thought when I saw all the people there that a lot of good things also happen in the world. A lot of people caring for the people with Alzheimer's. A lot of parents and teachers going out of their way for children. A lot of pro 
players. I saw the Yankees yesterday patting little kids at a midnight ball game because their children can never have sun on their bodies. They have a rare disease. And those Yankees didn't have to be there. And I'm the last person in the world to think that God's working through the Yankees. (laughs) But good things are happening in the world, and we get to be a part of it. Some of it is verbal, some of it is in song, and most of it is in action along the way. So when you hear all throughout the text, all the weird wardrobe, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet for protection, the sword of the Spirit, don't forget the middle one, the positive one, that strange piece of apparel that really works. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Amen.